Um, Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We'll get after it. This message is going to be a little different in this sense. Uh, it's going to be kind of inductive in nature, which, which just simply means that I'm going to explain a lot and I'm going to reason with you from the text for a while until we get to the kind of the nitty and gritty at the end, which is the application. So if you would imagine a funnel with me, the, the first part of the message, first 60% of the message, we're going to just be funneling these truths down to where it's, it's a very concise application at the end. I'll give you the big idea pretty close to the front, but then we're going to go to work on the text. And being an afternoon service, so closely after we've eaten, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not waste any time here. Uh, so, so, in fact, I cut out about 850 words from the sermon this morning because I don't want there to be any fat in it at all. And so everything that I'm going to say, I think, is necessary to lead us to a point of application that we need. Every demographic, every age needs. So tune in and stay tuned and work hard with me. I'll try to preach with clarity and and, and quickly this afternoon. Uh, The title of the message is this worship and succession. Now, if you come on Wednesday nights, if you don't, I would really urge you to come on Wednesday nights. We're studying through the Psalms of Asaph right now. I was scheduled to preach this one last Wednesday and I knew I wanted to preach it where everybody could hear it because I want our kids to hear this. I want, I want our parents and grandparents to hear this. I want our whole church to hear this. But this is part of that series. So, so this is kind of what you would have gotten on a Wednesday night. And, and you got to come back this Wednesday for Psalms 80. The definition of succession is this. When people share a specified characteristic and follow one after the other. So there's a lot of examples of, of when succession happens in life. Uh, you know, my first one, I thought of business and I thought of Knutson Enterprises, Brother Kay. And there was some succession involved there because Brother Kay's father, Miss Amy's father, it's Diane's father, uh, Chuck uh, Knutson was a contractor in Iowa and, and then they moved, ended up moving to Liberal where, where he opened his construction business called Knutson Enterprises and worked for many years. And John Knutson, one of his sons, worked underneath him for those years. And then John took upon himself the same characteristics and followed after his dad and continued that, that business there. There was a succession there. Now John's retired and Joel didn't want to take it. So it basically got cut off, but, um, it, it had a good run. It had a good run, Joel. Um, and now he's got a good, he's got a good boss Brother Troy's boss. So praise the Lord. Um, then there's hobbies. You know, some men pass down to their sons or grandkids like, like hunting, a love for hunting or a love for golf or a love for cars, working on cars. Uh, some, some women pass down to their, their daughters or granddaughters quilting or cooking or shopping, um, things like that. That's maybe an example of succession. Certainly the obvious example in our church is from Pastor Landis to my dad to, to myself. That's an example of succession. And this idea of succession when it comes to transferring our faith is, is the most important succession in, the, in all of Scripture. It's actually mentioned from the very beginning when God chose the Israelites to be his people and rescued them from Egyptian bondage. This is the command he gave them in terms of succession. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. He's talking to the parents. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. So from the beginning, God had this idea of parents, you give your kids your faith. Kids, you take your parents' 
faith. And then kids, you, you pass those down through the generations. And it's obvious in this psalm, in the first seven verses, Asaph is particularly passionate about the succession of faith from one generation to the next. We, we are hundreds of years later from the book of Deuteronomy with the same exact principles. Look at the first seven verses. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Asaph is saying, listen, fathers. And by fathers, we're not just talking about the male figures in the home. I think that applies to parents. It's mothers as well. It's grandparents. It's seasoned Christians in the church, aged people in the church. He's saying this, uh, you need to pass on. It's your responsibility to pass on your faith and your heart for worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. You need to pass that on to the generation coming behind you. And it was something he was, he was, he's particularly passionate about because he lived this, Asaph did. Look, look at this next phrase. It'll be on the screen. Worship and leading worship characterized Asaph's lineage from the time of the beginning of Solomon's temple construction in 962 B.C. to the return from exile and securing of the city under Nehemiah in 445 B.C., a span of approximately 500 years. Let that sink in. That's an amazing legacy. Imagine your life being a life of worship and faith lived so passionately, so purposefully, so consistently, so pointedly that half a millennium later, a significant body of your descendants gladly devoted themselves to the very same thing that you were devoted to. And now they're leading their children to do the same. Hey, that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for Fellowship Baptist Church. And now Asaph is writing from that passion a prayer song to try and inspire others to do the same in their families. And the way he does this is by going back in history and recalling how many fathers actually failed in the succession of their worship and faith to their children. And he was going to point to God's, people, his, God's people's history for this reason. He wanted the people currently to learn from their history and not repeat history. And so he starts generally in verse 8, look. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So here's the general problem with, with the nation's history right now, with God's people. Fathers were rebellious, spiritually rebellious, stubborn towards God. They had bad hearts and they had bad spirits and they were not steadfast in their faith. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? A few fathers weren't right with God. One generation was rebellious. It's okay. Things can get back on track. Well, not so quick. What Asaph is going to show us is that all it takes is one father. All it takes is one generation to show us that, 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 that if one father is unfaithful, if just one generation is unfaithful, then it's going to make Future generations are going to make it that much more difficult for future generations to catch the baton of faith. Here's the big idea of the psalm, and we're going to go to work on it. If fathers are unfaithful, children will wonder. 
If children wonder, whole generations will be lost. You might say, I'm not a father in here. Just use father as an application for, for, for older men in the church, uh, for, for even medium age men in the church. You have younger men that might look up to you. Um, for mothers, grandparents, uncles, any type of spiritual influence. Latch on to that phrase because we're going to keep repeating it over and over. Now Asaph goes to verse 9 through 11. He says, let me give you a good example of this. Okay, I, I've been using fathers generally, but let me talk about a specific tribe by the name of Ephraim. And he says, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows, here's their problem. They turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Now, let me give you a quick history lesson of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim grew up in a great home. How many know who Ephraim's dad was? Who? Joseph. What was Ephraim's brother's name? Manasseh. Through the century, I mean, that's a pretty good home. You studied Joseph's life. Through the centuries, Ephraim became the strongest of the tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And under the leadership of Joshua, they entered into the promised land. Just study the book of Joshua. But sadly, once they got there, they stopped fighting. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they said, hey, we're good in the promised land. We don't need to rid ourselves of all the ites in here, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Cellulites, all the ites that were already in the, the, the promised land. Hey, we're, we're good to, to, to come into the promised land, but we will settle with partial victory. That's what verse 9 says. They turn back in the day of battle. On top of that, over time, they slowly drifted from the faithful worship of Yahweh to like a man-centered, man-defined worship. You can study the book of 1 Kings chapter 12 on your own, and it shows how the tribes of Ephraim refused to go to Jerusalem to worship God, which is where, where the temple was, where they were, it was the center of worship, but instead they set up their own system of worship, that their own uh, worship center where they were at, an alternate priesthood, uh, alternate priesthood, a man commission altar. Now this is important. Ephraim didn't forsake God altogether. Did you hear me? They just wanted to worship him on their terms, in their way, at their convenience, where they wished, how they wished, when they wished, just, just a slight bit of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And here's what we can't miss. That choice of unfaithfulness in worship didn't stop with them. That subtle drift of stopping short in the battle didn't end with them. The next generation made their own adjustment of worship. Ex uh, um, exhibited their own lackadaisicalness in battle. And this continued for generations. And I want you to fast forward to the end of the psalm in verse 67, because I will show you how it ended up for the tribe of Ephraim. Moreover, he, it's talking about God, God refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. So because the fathers of Ephraim were unfaithful, they settled for partial victory. They adjusted their worship to fit their style. Their children wondered. And their children wondered. And their children wondered. wondered. And eventually, whole generations were lost. And I say lost because verse 68 says that God chose a replacement, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. Look up here for a second. God had honored Ephraim for a long time. They belonged to, to Joshua, the great conqueror. 
In the tribe of Ephraim was Gideon, the great judge. Within its borders was Shiloh, the place of the ark and the sanctuary. But now the Lord would change all of this and set up other rulers. He would no longer leave matters to the leadership of Ephraim since that tribe had been found unfaithful for so long. They were unfit to lead. They, they were unfit to house the presence of God any longer. Listen, it's not that their unfaithfulness to the purposes or, or their unfaithfulness thwarted the purposes of God in the world. It's just that they forfeited the opportunity to be a bigger part of God's purposes in the world. Future generations of the tribe of Ephraim missed out because past generations were unfaithful. Now here's what's really important for us to get and what Asaph's going to illustrate to the rest of the history lesson in Psalm 78. What happened in verse 67, God's refusal to choose the tribe of Ephraim, did not happen overnight. It might be the reason Psalm 79 is the second longest psalm outside of Psalms 119. Because the psalmist wants to show us there were many back and forth between God and the tribe of Ephraim and the children of Israel for so long before he said, you know what, I'm going to choose another tribe. And it's, I want you to do this with me. I'm not going to reproduce every verse in this psalm. Don't get nervous. If I did, some of you would keep on napping like you are now anyway. So. But, but I want you to, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and forth with me like we're watching a tennis match for a second. You ever, you ever done that? Serve, return. Hit, return. Hit, return like this. And so you don't physically be going left and right. But, but here's what, what we're going to do. God's going to serve up his faithfulness. And they're going to return with unfaithfulness. And he's going to come back with his faithfulness. They're going to return unfaithfulness. And I want you to see that by the time we get to verse 67, you might, you might, not, you might say, why didn't God do that earlier? B- because it was a back and forth. And this is so important to the message. And so follow along for just a moment. Look at verse 12. Marvelous things did he, this is God serving his faithfulness. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the, divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also he had led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness, gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. That's a good God, but look at their response. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? God responds again, serves some more faithfulness. Verse 21, therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. That is an aspect of his grace, by the way. He doesn't give up on us. So fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. Verse 22, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Um, Then he goes on all the way through verse 31 to talk about how God's wrath was displayed. Look at their response in verse 32. For all this, they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. God's response in verse 33. Therefore, their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. Did that change him? Look at verse 34. When he slew them, then they sought him, sought him and they, they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. So at first it appeared that they were getting right with God and returning his faithfulness with their faithfulness. But they were just hypocritical. What would God do? Verse 38. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned his anger away and did not stir up all of his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. He showed such grace to them. How would they respond? Verse 40. How often they provoke him in the wilderness 
and grieve him in the desert. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Then you get to verse 42. And for the next 13 verses, Asaph uses a number of action verbs to describe God's serves of faithfulness to them. Look at it. I got a list made for you. Verse 43, he wrought. 44, he turned. 45, he sent. 46, he gave. He destroyed. He gave. He cast. He made. He smote. Verse 52, he made. 53, he led. He brought. He cast out. Are you seeing? This is all God's initiative. You can't miss this. This is all God's faithfulness. Surely his people would wake up and say, wow, you're good. You, you keep Serving your faithfulness, maybe they will respond right. But look at verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the most high God and kept not his testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. How would God respond? When God heard this, he was wroth. Greatly abhorred Israel in 60 through 64 details God's anger. Are you dizzy? Back and forth. Do you get the point? Serve and volley. God's faithful, his people are unfaithful. God's faithful again, his people are unfaithful again. One generation to the next. The point is that by the time God rejected a whole generation of Ephraimites in verse 67, they had rejected his grace a hundred times. He extended his hand of grace, but they failed to reach out and and grab it. They left God hanging. You ever extended your hand for a handshake and somebody left you hanging? What are you supposed to do with that? All right. Most of the time we withdraw our hand. Right? We might hold it out. Few of us just sit there and hold it out till they come back. It's painfully awkward. So we just like. How are you doing? Oh, man, it's been a long day. Hasn't it? You know what I mean? We withdraw. And here's the point. God withdraws too eventually. He just holds his hand out a lot longer than we ever would. Like 67 verses worth. Like his, his hand of grace is like so long you can't see the end of it. It's amazing. But you got to understand this on the, on the authority of the word of God. At some point, God withdraws his hand. Well, how do you know that? Well, one, this tells me, but Proverbs 29, one tells me too. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. That means that God somehow in his sovereignty has like this invisible line drawn for every single person. Where if they have said no to him for so long and and they, they have stiffened their neck in stubbornness to his extensions of grace for so long. At some point he will stop reaching out his hand. And that ought to humble every one of us. And by the way, just don't say no to God. Just accept his offers of grace every time he gives those to you. The point is that this didn't happen overnight. Here's what happened. God was faithful and one father wasn't faithful in return. And then God was faithful and another father, that father's child, because he saw his dad behave that way, wasn't faithful. But God said, I'm not giving up on him yet. And so he went to that guy's grandkid. Because the grandkid saw his grandpa acting that way and being stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious and carnal and sinful and worldly and wouldn't repent. You know what he did? He took off where his grandpa left off. And you get 60-some verses through the song. Generations later, here's what happened. A father wasn't faithful. So a child wondered. 
And enough children wonder, and years and decades later, a whole generation is lost. Now, I want to illustrate this, and boy, I hope this goes good. This is, this is literally like a blind illustration. I didn't even test it with the staff to see if it would work. So here we go. Put it up there. That's the first of many lines you will see. So hang with me. I'm going to try to get this across because I think this will help. I want you to suppose you came upon this perfectly straight line. Okay? Let's suppose, hypothetically, that it is 10 feet in length. Okay? We just think that for a moment. Further suppose that, that you then tried to draw a line perfectly parallel to it. And let's say your first attempt is, is an inch long. Okay? Is that inch long line parallel to the 10 foot line? Well, as you look at it, you eyeball, it appears parallel. I mean, I've done my best, you've done your best to write a, a straight line. But really, we'll only know if it's parallel if we extend it a little further. So you lengthen it from one inch to one foot. Even further from one foot to five feet. Then from five feet to ten feet. Quickly you realize that a micro variation, a micro drift at the one inch mark or the one foot mark led to a more serious deviation at the ten foot mark. And imagine if you extended those to be ten miles long that bottom line wouldn't even be on the screen if it stayed in that direction. Okay, now let's try the tribe of Ephraim for a moment. God laid down a line of faithfulness to this tribe. He chose them, didn't he? And he blessed them. And he called them and he gave them a godly leader in Joshua. And he led them to the promised land. And they responded, but not with a parallel life. They wanted something of God in their lives, but they, they wanted God on their terms. They didn't want to be a godless people, but neither did they want to be an entirely God-centered people. They wanted God in the box of their own construction. Sadly, so did their children. And so did their grandchildren. And over the course of a lifetime, with the passing of a generation, in the succession of multiple generations, what do you have? Put that next one up there, Tammy. You have a nearly insurmountable chasm between the line of God's faithfulness and the line of Ephraim's unfaithfulness that the father be... Listen, the fathers began that at the one-inch mark. Are you tracking with me? If you're not, pretend so I don't feel like another failure. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a slight drift at the one-inch mark. One father! One grandpa! One big brother, one pastor, one tribe leader, one spiritual leader said, I'm going to drift from God's plan of worship. I'm going to drift in my faith just a little bit, but God will understand. And then their children took off where they left off. Because that's what children do most of the time. And then that happens. And here's what, it, what is sad. This continues to this day. Start over the illustration. God has been faithful to us. Right? He's laid down a line of faithfulness in, in, in sending his son Jesus Christ for us. We're given an opportunity to, to lay down a line of response. And I would say that, that most of us in here desire to respond appropriately to God's faithfulness. You're here at 1.30 on a Sunday afternoon. But oftentimes, over time, the line we lay down is not parallel. 
At the start, it looks like a good line. But then over a course of a lifetime, we've drifted very far from the line of God's faithfulness that he laid down for us. And at the end of our life, that's what it looks like. Question, how did that happen? I'm, I'm drilling down on this. It happens when the fathers... The parents, the grandparents, the seasoned Christians in the church, the pastors, the deacons. It's when we start to take slow, subtle steps of unfaithfulness in our lives. We accept Christ as our Savior. We've got an inch worth of a line that we've laid down. And it appears to be great. But a life of worship and faith is not measured merely by our initial response in salvation. It's measured by the ongoing of life of, of faithful obedience that comes from that initial response. In other words, faith is not transferred to the next generation because of what you do on Sundays. Faith is transferred to the next generation because of what you do between Sundays. Here's what happens. We make one choice, dads. We make one compromise, moms. We make one small drift of unfaithfulness, church. But that doesn't make the line completely crooked or beyond repair. It's just an inch worth. What makes the line really crooked is when God extends his hands of grace, but we go like that. And then God extends again and we go like that. And we keep leaving God hanging. The preacher preaches as a messenger from God, but we're stiff-necked. And we'll just do Christianity our way. And we want worship in a box of our own construction. We'll come to church when we want. We'll give when we want. We'll serve how we want. We'll dress how we want. We'll go where we want. Nobody will tell us what to do. No accountability. No spiritual leadership. We're just going to make slow, subtle steps. It doesn't start with just one choice. It, can, it does start with one choice, but it continues whenever we leave God hanging. When God's like, get back on the line, get back on the line, and you are for so long have ignored God to get back on the line, that's when the line begins to drift. I want to dig a little deeper. Because the saddest part about this process is that our unfaithfulness doesn't stop with us. Our children usually begin their own line of response to God's faithfulness and grace where we leave off. The children began where they saw their dad living his life. They began where they saw their mom living her life. They began where they saw grandpa and grandma living their life. Young men and young women in the church usually begin their line where they saw aged men and women living the, in the church, living their life inside of the church. Now, that's a good line. That's a good thing if your line is parallel to God's line. If you lived a life of faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness to you, that's a great thing. But it's a really bad thing if you haven't. If your child takes off where you left off, and you left off at a place that wasn't close to the Lord, then chances are they will drift even further from God's line. Then their children, our grandchildren, will take off where they left off. Are you getting the idea? Multiply that over several generations, and here's what you have. Next slide. You can't even see a line. That's why you can look back in people's family history. And today, they're nowhere to be found in God's house, fulfilling God's mission, or even loving God. They're not saved. And you can look back in their family history, and you can probably see at some point somebody did love God. Somebody did go to church. Somebody did raise their kids right. But one father drifted. 
maybe hundreds of years ago, one father in the family drifted and their child didn't, didn't reverse that curse, he drifted. And their child drifted. And their child drifted. And now many years later, you'd have no idea that there was a God-fearing person even in that family to begin with. And in the church, it's the same way. Because there are some churches that, are, that, that have closed their doors today. And if they haven't closed the doors, maybe they should because they're no longer effective in the Great Commission. They reach nobody. They're not interested in reaching anybody. They're nowhere to be found. Why? Some pastor took a subtle drift. Just one pastor. One deacon. A, uh, just a small group of men. One generation of a church said, we're going to do it our way. We're going to forsake God's word. We're going to go about things our way. And that doesn't show up immediately. But hundreds of years later, maybe five or six decades later, be more exact, that church is nowhere near where it began. That doesn't happen on accident. It happens over time as people slowly drift away from God's line of faithfulness. Here's the statement. If fathers are unfaithful, children will wonder. If children wonder, whole generations will be lost. Now let me talk to you. Because here's the application. Sometimes we lose focus. We lose sight of how much our decisions today will affect future generations coming behind us. We get real selfish. Can I talk to the parents for a second? Me being one of them. Did you know it's the little daily decisions that you make right now that will make your line start drifting away from God's line? Small, tiny compromises. Let me give you some examples. Like arguing with your spouse in a disrespectful, hateful, ungracious kind of way. Do that enough. And your kids hear that enough. And over time, that's the picture they get of marriage and love. And that's the place they're likely to start their marriage. Where you left off. Allowing your son or your daughter to miss church for extracurricular activities on a regular basis. That's moving the line ever so slightly. But if you do it for long enough, it ends up being a pretty big drift away from God's idea of faithfulness. It only takes one weekend to start that drift, by the way. Yep. Stay home from church, mom or dad. Work during church constantly by choice, not necessity. Send them to church with your spouse. Send them to church with your parents. Hey, just let them stay at home with you. One time. Two times. Not a lot of damage done. It's just an inch. But you do that enough and you do it for long enough and the line starts to drift big time in your child's heart for God. How about this? Lowering your standards for holy living in the area of entertainment and media. What do I mean? Slowly allowing more and more of the world into your home will over time shift your line really far from God's. And it will affect your child's heart for God. Listen closely. Something you introduce into your home or allow into your home when your child's eight won't show up in their life until they're 18. Oh, it might show up earlier. 
But when you allow unholiness into your house at age eight, don't be surprised when they're 18 and have no craving for holiness whatsoever. I've seen the line drift when a dad decides to uproot his family and just move. Have no idea if there's a church where they're going. They just don't like liberal. The, the, the church here has been such an anchor for them and their family. And then all of a sudden, for economic reasons or simple geographic reasons, not even spiritual discernment whatsoever, just uproot a family. And that, that's okay at the one-inch mark, but I've seen, it, I've seen it happen so many times. That one choice is what started the drift. Hypocrisy, mom and dad, in the home is a huge way to lose the next generation. Is anybody listening? We don't have to be perfect to get our kids' hearts. We have to be real. Did you hear me? We don't have to be perfect. But we need to be real. And many parents just flat out think they can fake their kids out. Like, kids are smarter than you think. Bailey, you're smarter than you look sometimes. And we think that we can have a critical, cynical, dramatic attitude at home that has nothing to do with the Bible, and our daughters aren't picking up on that? We come to church and we're all composed and good and great. We go home, we're screaming everywhere, and our kids don't pick up on that? Are you hearing me? We sing in a choir, we hold a microphone and sing, but we go home and cuss and curse and yell at our spouse belittle our kids? Oh, I'm being real because we need to be real about this stuff. These are the things. These are the micro variations. These are the one inch drifts. That yes, if you come to church and God extends his hand of grace, here's what can happen. You can say, God, I'm sorry for that. God, I've been kind of on a bad road. I'm going to get back on the right road. And his grace will redeem those things. But if you keep ignoring his grace and rejecting his grace and, and kind of stiffening your neck and saying that preacher's overreacting, then it might not be today, but two or three or four years down the road or a decade or two down the road, it will show up. What do you have to do? Stop the drift at the one inch mark. Don't go 67 verses worth. If you made a bad decision and God in his grace has extended his hand or hitch upside the face a little bit, giving you a little bit of a spanking, get back on the right track. Church, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. And not even the gates of hell, Miss Virginia, can attack the church. On that authority, I say there will always be a gospel church in the world. Always. But that doesn't mean that Fellowship Baptist Church will always be one of them. The only way we will continue for decades as a church that helps people find and follow Jesus is if everybody under the sound of my voice today refuses to drift. So you know what? We're not getting off mission. There aren't going to be things big. There's going to be nothing bigger in our church than the gospel message. Than helping people find and follow Jesus. I'm not, we're not going to get complaining. We're not going to get critical. 
We're not going to major on, on stupid stuff. We're going to stay focused on reaching everybody with the gospel that God sends our way. But we're going we're to continue to have missions conferences every April and bring in a group of missionaries and commit that above our tithes, we're going to give an offering to worldwide missions. And if it's anything like it's been in the last few years, we're going to give well over $250,000 annually to missions. We're going to keep doing that. But if we stop that, that's just a micro drift. But it's a micro drift to become an inwardly focused church, Brother Dwayne. We could say, you know what, we don't want to do liberal love projects anymore. We don't want to do any outreaches anymore. No, no open houses anymore. No trunk or treat type things anymore. You know why? Because we're already kind of crammed in here as it is. I don't even know everybody in my own church. And I'm not a big church person. If we get any bigger, I'm gone. I'm not into the whole evangelism type thing. That is a micro drift from that mission right there. And if, here's why churches close their doors, because enough people start thinking that way. Enough people start thinking, you know what, I don't know about all these people I don't know. And I, I don't know, I saw them on Facebook. I don't know if our church has a place for them. You get enough people thinking that way. And it won't happen in my lifetime, but it'll happen in Kevin's lifetime. Fellowship Baptist Church won't know, they won't be a place that helps people find and follow Jesus anymore. Because people today, 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 you and I stop doing it. Are you getting to see the importance of the fathers? By fathers, I mean this present generation. Us. We can't drift. Or, no, I shouldn't say it that way because we all drift. We just can't reject God's grace when we do drift. Because there are going to be times when we, we, give, we, get, we serve God our unfaithfulness. But in His grace, just like the prodigal father, He's going to come running to us and we return. He's going to return that with, with, with His run of grace, His faithfulness to us. When He does that, church, don't reject it. Say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for, for accepting me even though I've drifted. You just got to catch yourself at the front end of the drift. Don't be rebellious. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't have a bad spirit because that's all the way in verse 8. Fast forward to verse 67 and God says, I'm done. In between verse 8 and verse 67, learn to say, God, I'm wrong. Help me. So let me show you that line again. Is that what your life looks like right now? Is your line of response to God's faithfulness to you, is it parallel to His? Or have you drifted in one area or another in your home? In your parenting? In your lifestyle? In your choices? In your enthusiasm for Christ? In your walk? Is there any drift whatsoever? If there is, you need to come say, God, help me. Do it right now. Because, because every time you say no to His grace, it gets a little easier to say no again. That's how the church in Revelation became lukewarm. And God said, I'm going to spew them out of my mouth. Because over time, their hearts just became calloused. Boy, God, help us not to think that way. I got good news for you, though. Because some of you come from a really, really 
well, unparalleled line. You didn't have a straight line that was handed to you. My dad didn't. My uncle Rick didn't. In fact, they didn't have parents whose line were even on the page. First generation Christians. Maybe some down, way down the line, Uncle Rick, there was some parallel line in your family. I don't know. But by the time it got to grandpa and grandma, it wasn't on the screen. Alcohol was on the screen. Partying was on the screen. Doing life your own way was on the screen. But not a parallel line of response of faithfulness to God's grace in their life. But at some point, they reversed that. At some point, they said, you know what? For the Prater family, we're going to write our own line. And with his grace and his help, the line hasn't always been crooked, especially when sin was born. Or hasn't always been straight. It got crooked when sin was born. But, but, but we, we tried to straighten that through, through the years. But here's the point. There's now in the Prater family a straight line. Not because it's always been there, but because two teenage boys decide to put it there. You don't have to be a product of your environment. You are a product of God's grace. You are a product of God's faithfulness. So I don't care if your mom served God, if your dad served God, or you even have a line on the speck of your page. Start it today. That's the good news. The good, good news. And then there's some more good news because some of you, as I'm preaching this, you understand that your line is already crooked. It's not at one inch. Some of you with your children, the way you've parented, the way your, your, your lifestyle choices, you've got about a, a five-foot mark that's beginning to kind of show the curve. Here's the good news. Repent today. Your life's not over. Your parenting's not done. Your grandparenting's not done. Your role in Felt Baptist Church hasn't ceased to exist. Reverse that right now. Go to the bottom end of that line. And with God's help, start picking it up to be more parallel. And some of you in here, and maybe you'll never have kids. Jenny and I thought we'd never have a kid. By God's grace, he's given us one. Some of you may not have kids. Can I encourage you with something? Two things. Two things. If, 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 if infertility is part of your story, then maybe you ought to consider foster care or adoption. Because there are some kids out there that if there's not a Christian family to take the risk on them, they will not have a line. And if you foster, it might just be for a couple months. See, this is putting our money where our mouth is. Might just be for, for a year, I don't know. But if you'll take that risk, maybe you'll at least start a kid's line. Maybe you'll give him a chance. God would let you adopt. I know it costs a lot of money and I know it's hard and, and I know there's a lot of hoops to jump through. But if God lays that on your heart, would you pursue that? Because there's a little boy, there's a little girl whose mom and dad don't even care about the line. And they need some family to come in who has the wherewithal and the resources, the energy and the time and says, you know what? This is God's will for our family. We're going to do it. And you do it and you make a difference in somebody's life. Boy. You see, our choices don't stop with us. That's my point right now. Our choices continue with those behind us. So, so check your line today. Because somebody will take off where you leave off. And if your kids took off today where you are leaving off today, where would their line be? It's a good question, isn't it? When fathers are unfaithful, children wonder. 
Enough children wonder and whole generations are lost. After I'm dead in God, I want a Fellowship Baptist Church to stand stronger than it's ever stood. But it's up to us. And I want my son to love Jesus. And I want to marry a woman that loves Jesus. I want to love Jesus the rest of his life. And a lot of that's being determined right now by my choice. Can I say one more thing? Children of all ages, you have to take your parents' faith. They might do everything they can to pass it to you. But it's still your choice. I'm looking at kids all over the room. It's like if they want to share their ball with you, you have to take it still. And there, there are heartbroken parents in it right now. I know that in their heart they're struggling because they're saying, God, I messed up, but I did everything I could to keep my line straight, but my kid never took it. And it's not their parents' fault. Listen to me. Your mom and dad will never be perfect. Their line will drift all the time because they're sinners. But listen to me, young girls. Listen, you have to take your mama's faith. Daniel, you have to take your dad's faith. Chase and Moses and Kevin, you got to take your parents' faith. Teenagers, you got to take your grandparents' faith, your mom's faith, your dad's faith. They won't be perfect, but, but, but please, 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 please don't judge them for that. Do your best to say, I'll try, Dad. I'll try, Mom, not so that you won't disappoint them, but so that you can have a life that is full and flourishing for the Lord. Because listen, teenagers, the decisions you make right now you're writing a line right now. And you are going to leave off. And God's going to give some of you children. And the decisions you are making right now is either to give them a, a better chance or making their chances even harder to follow your faith. So you take the faith from your parents and from your church. And parents, don't lose hope if your adult children have not taken your faith. You get to an altar tonight and you pray for them. Because the prodigals do come home. And we have a prodigal father that will meet them halfway. Enough, here's why prodigals don't come home convinced of it. We don't pray them home. Let's get on our knees right now. Mom and dad, take your kids. Take your wife. Grandparents, come down here. Singles, maybe you're a teacher. And you have a, a dramatic amount of influence in kids' lives. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher in here. Maybe you're a young person. I believe with all my heart the altars ought to be full today. If you're not comfortable that way, you ought to kneel at your seat. Stay seated in your seat. Grab your spouse's hand. Grab another Christian's hand. And say, let's pray for the succession of faith in this place. Because God, we need your help. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.